0: Welcome back to Just Upstage of Downtown, the Music Mountain Theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Lavery. Jason Kahn has been the director of bands at Woodbridge High School since 2011 and has conducted and played in the pits of many musicals over the course of his career, in addition to a diverse onstage resume. But this New Jersey native is a relative newcomer to MMT, having made his debut here in the summer of 2022 in the ensemble of last year's Mountie winner for Best Musical, In the Heights. By the time Jason treaded the boards in Lamperville for the first time, though, he'd become a familiar face to many members of the MMT family, both as a patron and a participant in monthly cabarets over Zoom during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I take some measure of credit for that. I've had the privilege and good fortune of calling this man my best friend since we met as freshmen at Mars Knowles High School in Rockaway, New Jersey, over 20 years ago. It was not long after Jason got to know me that he became aware I'd been writing songs since the age of five, and even more shortly thereafter that he enlisted my help in a stage production he'd been conceptualizing. That show, Life is a Musical, took more than three years of work to finally become a reality at the end of our senior year at Morris Knowles in 2005. For anyone who knows either of us, the history and continuing saga of Life is a Musical, acronym LIAM, is an inescapable part of our brand of friendship. It remains the ambitious creation of two teenagers who called on their friends and peers to bring it to life. Recently backstage at MMT, Jason and I got together piano at hand to officially document for the first time ever our process of how Liam was born and discuss the larger points of how to take something from page to stage and whether a piece of theater is ever really finished. You'll hear snippets of the original cast performing the score, as well as parts of certain musical numbers from the show sung by familiar Music Mountain voices, and you'll get to peek behind the curtain at some cut or revised material that has never yet been publicly performed. Without further ado, I invite Jason Kahn just upstage of downtown to share the story of Life is a Musical. So Jason, where I want to start with is, I think we both have people in our lives that we remember the exact moment we met them for the first time. And despite how close we are, I don't actually remember our first meeting. I know approximately when it was and obviously where, but we very quickly became friends. Very true.
1: Uh, I was fresh off of my first summer at uh, summer camp, away at theater camp, and it was marching band camp, oh gosh, in (laughs) 2001. 2001. 2001. Mildly embarrassing reason how we met each other and how I introduced myself, but maybe (laughs) that will go uh, potentially unsaid in this instance.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's not dip our toe into that. So then we start going to high school together. And you come up with this idea, and I was not originally gonna be part of this idea. Can you tell me again, because I always like this story, about your very beginnings of what Life as a Musical was going to be?
1: Oh, Life as a Musical is never going to be a musical. I was 14 and I said, I want to write a symphony, but I want to bring all these people along with me. I said, I don't know much about percussion, so let me find a percussionist. Um, oh, I'm, I'm a okay brass player, but I'm really a woodwind player. So I only find a brass player, uh, and I wanted to write music as a symphony. Little did I know at 14 that you know that's a one-person job. That if your Mozart can take a week, or if your other composers can take your entire lifetime. So it was something that that was the original thought process and the original idea of where I was going, uh, only to come to realize that that form of collaboration doesn't really work. So uh, quickly, it switched over to uh, a musical. And I initially was was talking to Patrick about uh, being the percussion person uh, for obviously all of the orchestral percussion experience that he had (laughs) at age 14. (laughs) But it was one of those instances where uh, our mutual love of theater kind of led us in this direction, saying, okay, what if we did this?
0: So had you dabbled in playwriting before? Had you dabbled in like narrative structure of what a theatrical piece would be? Short answer? (laughs) No. Uh, I had been very, very fortunate uh,
1: throughout my life. My family uh, had provided me the opportunity to see uh, many shows and many productions at uh, Paper Mill Playhouse and on Broadway. So it always had been something that was kind of uh, in my existence, in my being, I guess but did I ever take time at writing plays? No, I'd written some short stories, some poetry, but nothing to the extent or the level of, of this amount of material in the period of time that we ended up creating it in.
0: So I've tried to collaborate on musical theater pieces with, with other people over the years, and there are just a, a lot of false starts because I feel like I can't motivate myself. And you made it very easy and in fact spoiled all of the subsequent experiences that I had because by the time I got involved, you handed me a two-page basically outline of what you wanted the show to be, scene breakdown, and even titles of musical numbers. And by the time I started writing, you had already written out lyrics to the first two or three songs.
1: In hindsight now, that is definitely not the way to write a musical. Maybe it's a a bit of a a control freak thing. Maybe it was I had a clear vision, or as clear a vision as you can have as a uh, teenager, but I was a teenager writing about teenage angst, and maybe it was uh, an outlet for me for things that I was hoping to will into existence. I don't know. We're we're all teenagers, and we have uh, this yearning for acceptance, this yearning for Uh, the attention of a person, this yearning for all of these different things in our lives. And maybe this was one of my ways of trying to, you know, in the modern sense, trying to manifest our thoughts into existence. But uh, I'm able to kind of look back now and say that is not how it, it works. It's a lot more of a collaborative process. And it was almost like, okay, I'm a musician. Yes, I'm an artist. I just don't know what songs go here. So it was kind of a, a weird collaborative process because it was initially me just sort of saying, hey, can you put music to this? And uh, it definitely evolved past that as we went through the process.
0: Yeah, so before I start to get into how I put music to some of those songs and the ways that I tried to envision uh, what the compositional themes of the show would be, you talked a little bit about the, the broad themes of being in high school writing about that experience writing about the feelings that we all had when we were that age talk about now i should sidebar here i always tell people about mine and jason's friendship he's one of the few close friends that i allow to call me on a regular basis and i would say would you say jay about once a week we talk about revising life as a musical and we never actually do We it. never actually do it. We've, I, I can even get into some uh, some cut material or some abortive uh, brainstorms that we've had, but why don't you talk about, as much as there was a plot, what the plot would be, or was?
1: Well, was. Uh, initially, it was a guy entering his senior year of high school uh, and... See, we've gone through so many different revisions and new ideas that I yeah. occasionally forget back to where it originally was. Yeah. And uh, he was interested in girls, so guy meets girl? Not not really meets girl, they had, had been friendly for a period of time. Uh girl has lousy boyfriend uh, who is overly aggressive and is worried about our protagonist stepping in and stepping on toes. Only now do we kind of look back and realize it wasn't a show about the protagonist. It was really a show about the girl getting stuck in between and having to make some choices, and that actually leads uh, eventually to probably the most successful song we wrote in that uh, in that show. But I think we'll get there a little bit
0: later. So uh, it's, it's the best song I've ever written, and I wrote it when I was fourteen.
1: Hey, it's pretty good. We'll we'll, uh, we'll keep it going. Yeah. But uh, with that, it's it was. Now we look back and say, okay, it was there a story about her, and then we had like a teacher as a framing device to kind of keep the action moving, and it was kind of a, a sad sack of a guy saying, oh, I I wish, very into the woods, I wish, yeah. right? But uh, but him having to eventually take part and take action in what he wanted to do, and that's something that is kind of modern now to say, okay, you're. What are you doing about it? What are you going to go forth and actually do, and how are you going to change? And that's how, when we're now starting to revisit ideas, if we ever are to actually make active revisions, in short of me sending you uh, a few pages as a birthday gift every now and again, uh, it will be something that we need to look through a more modern lens, even though a lot of the ideas are kind of timeless.
0: So you talk about modern ideas, and you and I have talked a lot about the way that I write songs, and I think my primary reference, over and above, is Carole King. Uh, yes. Both in my personal, <laughs> both in my personal songwriting, and as it turned out for this show. But I was also, when we started working on this, getting into a time of my life it was about fourteen or fifteen, where I really started to get into kind of a nostalgia for '80s music. So. The opening number, which, again, you had already written the the lyrics for, uh, was called Today's the Day. It is all the kids in preparation for their musical auditions for that year. And it kind of had this very 80s vibe. So you kind of see where that is going
1: and it's definitely something that as we learned through the process a lot of the initial ideas and the initial lyrics and things that we put in it became a bit shoehorny here and there I mean that's of course we're in hindsight mode by now yeah. we're looking back but yeah. uh, there were some things that were, could have been a lot more specific I believe it was It's Time to Start Something
2: New Today which yeah. is yeah, um, universal It's Time to Start Something New gotta go we gotta go go. right
1: and it's there's something generic about that but also with the way we were at at 14 that seemed like the thing that needed to be said
0: yeah and and also i don't think we learned certain uh, nuances about lyric writing one of the biggest self-criticisms that we both have had of the show over the years is that the songs did not Service the plot enough. They did not advance the action the way that I think you and I both think a musical should.
1: Yeah, it's the the Sondheim quote that we didn't learn yet.
0: There are things in that that song that I still like, even though I think about the the bridge that Chris, the best friend character, sings to Liam, the the main character, and even though it sounds like a journey song, like I like I, I like the the feel of it. Which is, again, just like the the same kind of chord progression but with different bass notes. So you just... Ve- Do you remember the first full attempt at a revision that we did where we kind of flip-flopped and we put... I think the original idea was to put Today's the Day at the top of the second act and kind of invert it into a song that I really liked that we worked on together, which was called Same Story Every Year, which took the first act back to the beginning of the school year.
2: Mm-hmm. And we kind right. of...
0: What I did was I, I put Today's the Day in minor, basically. So.
1: I mean, it also shows an evolution of us as artists and us as writers, mm-hmm. because uh, stylistically that feels a lot more timeless, if you will, yeah. being able to take that in more in the Broadway lexicon, even with the... Uh, the way Broadway is evolving and changing so much every day—that's something that really feels that it would fit within the more modern context and more modern Broadway
2: world.
0: Yeah, and, and I wasn't thinking as a writer, how do I? Because what was the generation of shows when we were first writing that show? It was you're in Town, It was Wicked. It was Rent. Rent was still very relevant in in that time period. Um, now you'd have to think completely differently if you thought in that way. Again, I just feel like I default to a certain style of writing, which is why kind of uh, stretching me into... Uh, I can't even remember what key this was in. Oh, it was in B-flat. Which is why writing kind of a, a ragtimey type song like better, you know... That's not comfortable for me.
1: And that song was, once again, as we kind of look back at how we were, were writing things, the, the whole point was the we recognize the big beats of what you want to have in the musical theater world. We had the "I Want" song. Yeah. We had the uh, 11 o'clock number kind of, kind of down, pretty solid, uh, but this was the villain's "Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah,, <laughs> no. So better than you'll
2: ever be. I Be just top of the pack i I'm better than you'll ever be. I
1: got all the stuff you like. <laughs> it's weird, it's yeah. weird to word it that way. It's the yeah. villain saying, yeah, you have all these dreams and aspirations. <laughs> nice try, buddy. Yeah. It, it was interesting. And it was nice to have that kind of departure, a kind of a different feel and a different vibe uh, yeah. in that instance.
0: Yeah, and, and you do, I think when you're, I think if you're a pop artist who's writing maybe 10 songs for an album, you write, what is coming to your mind. I do think when you write a musical and you might have 25 different ideas throughout those two hours, I think you do keep it consciously in your mind to try to vary the formula a little bit.
1: There are times where doing the same thing over and over again really, really works. I mean, look at Jesus Christ Superstar. There's five <laughs> melodies in the entire song. Yeah. Or, I mean, in the entire show, there's five or six melodies that we hear. I mean, we could get into the whole leitmotif idea and everything like that, but that's definitely another podcast. Um,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> well, but, yeah. And I think of, uh, you were just talking about Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, two things. I think about Andrew Lloyd Webber and how Patti Lapone once said in an interview, he's the worst writer for females because he doesn't know how to write for a woman's voice. And I think at 14, I didn't know how to write for anybody's voice. I still don't know how to write for my own. I always say when I write songs for myself, I put them in awful keys for my own voice, but they just sound good. So that's a consideration, number one. The other thing is... I don't think you ever intentionally mean to plagiarize, but you do come up with ideas that you don't even realize where you got them from. Theater Whiz, which was the song that originally ended the first act, I realized somewhere along the line that I stole that melody from a Hoover vacuum commercial from the 90s. It's just a little bit, but if you go back and search hoover commercial 90s on youtube there is a jingle where the lyric is nobody does it like you and that's what that melody is and i didn't realize that
1: I mean, they say imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and obviously uh, you are a big proponent of hoover vacuums.
0: (laughs) Well, or I'm tapping into my inner Barry Manilow, which anybody who doesn't know the story, (laughs) before Mandy and Copacabana and all of those hits of the 70s, Barry Manilow made a lot of money writing commercial jingles. He wrote, Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is There. He wrote, I'm a Pepper for Dr. Pepper. Uh, You deserve a break today for McDonald's. So, I mean, they... He still, every time there's a State Farm commercial, Barry Manilow gets money because they still use that little jingle.
1: I think we've picked the wrong career.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is also what... Louis Polena always says this to me. He says, should have been a jingle writer because some of the stuff that he writes for children's theater here is so catchy.
1: And that's the key. And that kind of goes back to the whole process of finding... Our way in writing things that, one, we liked, and two, that that sounded good, of course, and three, that worked. So it's kind of finding all three of those to fit in at 14, which... 14 through 17, we can't just say that we yeah. we wrote for one... You No, know, it's a, definitely a four-year-long process that's still not finished.
0: Well, you remember uh, now, I have been accused over the years of being dramatic.
1: No. P- Pat,
0: you... Do you remember... Never. <laughs> Do you remember the phone call that I had with you after final dress rehearsal for this show where we cut three minutes off the finale before opening night? I said something like, if this doesn't work, I'm quitting the show, which I realized we were down to two performances of the show. And if it didn't work, that meant I was just not doing one performance. But again, there's also never been a piano book for this show because it's all in my head.
1: Uh, Yeah, I asked you to write one of those at one
0: point. Uh, never ha- got done. <laughs> I hate I hate finale. <laughs> That's why I use <laughs> <laughs> Um But you were talking about the process of... See, I'm someone who, when they get to work on a project, I want it done right away. This, by nature, was going to take a lot more time and effort and gradual going back and, and tweaking and changing. In that sense, we conceptualized things for this show that I really liked that we didn't get to use. Now, that was a song called Heart, which I loved, which was a a love triangle trio Mm -hmm. song that actually found legs during the pandemic. We did... A Zoom 15th anniversary production of this show, and we got some people from, from MMT, and we got some of the original cast from from Mars Nulls High School, and we all kind of collaborated on it. And it was great to see like my adult friends learn these songs that I had written as a teenager. There is a studio quote unquote recording of Heart that exists with me and Chelsea Connolly and Casey Ivan.
2: This is a problem I face every day, and I don't want to live this way. I am just fooling myself. If I don't let her go, I'll only my be fooling heart myself. myself. If I don't set her free, I'll be Fruly held in captivity. Why is
1: this I fact so just hard for me to be? Start. See, now listening back to that, that sounds like a wonderful bridge to something new. That that feels like something that (laughs) if we were to revisit that and I like that. It actually kind of gives me a bit of a Stephen Schwartz like wickety kind of vibe somewhere in there. But with that, uh, with the arpeggiations in there without getting too technical into it by any stretch of the imagination, it feels like a great ballad uh, moment or something that would be a a bridge into uh, a B section.
0: I was thinking about what I was just saying about unintentional plagiarism. I always say this about Alan Menken, is that when you're really great, you plagiarize yourself. The title song of this show, Life is a Musical, was the finale of the show, and I had written a musical when I was about 10. I was very dramatic. It was about the... I was big into U.S. history at the time, and I wrote a musical about the colonization of America. And the... Uh, So,
1: Lynn better watch out, right? Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) So, the Life is a Musical motif was a song that I had written called Life in America when I was 10 or 11. uh, That became the finale for the show. And I wrote it in 5-4. I don't know why. Uh...
1: There was a point where we wanted to do that number in seven. Once again, we look back and say, what the hell were
0: we thinking? Oh, there was, there were so many meter changes in that. That song originally was five minutes long. It was a big dance number choreographed by my ex-girlfriend who we fought every day of senior year of high school. Um, I, I love her, but we fought every day. And that was the song we cut three and a half. I think it was three and a half minutes off of after dress rehearsal, because, well, do you remember our our drama teacher, Stacy Spatola, Stacy Snyder, came to see the dress rehearsal, and she was very proud of what we had done, but she was like, "It's not as tight as it could be."
1: Uh, she was one hundred and fifty thousand percent correct. <laughs> <laughs> things there I say throughout the process independent of of the writing was uh, being a director of your peers yeah and that's one of those things that uh, we may take for granted uh, in our professional lives today and everything like that but being in the situation where you're a 17 year old or 18 year old telling your 18 year old friend hey yeah that's not right and they even if they're a great friend and they have a great deal of respect for you are just like Oh, no, that's how I'm going to do it. Uh, It gets to be uh, a challenge in that instance.
0: We also had people who, again, were friends of ours that not only was that difficult, but we had trouble, and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about, reining them in. And we had people in the cast who, even when they did musicals that were written by other people, thought it appropriate to take creative license and just get the general idea of the lines or riff a little bit or write their own monologue and insert it into the show.
1: Yeah, especially without telling us, which was an adventure unto itself. I'm just like... I, I, what is going on here? Once again, going back to the whole idea of there not actually being a score, I, in my infinite wisdom, said, yeah, I'll conduct. It'll be so great. I'm going to be a music teacher. And this will be my first conducting of a musical. The Pit didn't know where I, like, didn't watch me. They just followed Pat. Uh, the cast, I'm not sure if they watched me at all either. They were kind of listening back because uh, we did it in the round in a very unique configuration. But it was just one of those situations where I'm like, I'm just flipping pages. and I'm like, I didn't write this. No idea what the hell is going on.
0: One of my favorite songs that we added late in the run, I was having conversations with a girl that I liked at the time about how she didn't have a lot of the characteristics or qualities of the popular girls, but she was this gorgeous girl, and I was head over heels for her, and I wrote the song for her, and it became one of my favorite songs in the show, and it kind of... When you were talking about me being in the pit, I took the piano out of it. I played just tambourine on the song because I kind of boiled it down to this very, like, Motown girl group almost. uh, But I still love the, you know... That's the, the Girls I Know, which was done by um, Jenny McNiven when we did the, the reunion concert.
2: I'm not like all the others, and I don't know where to go.
1: And that's something that uh, I really, it, it shows also the growth of you as, as a writer. Even over the course of the past, over the, a couple of years, right. the, the development and the sophistication in that moment. And that was something that we probably collaborated the most partially with, with the actors on stage, kind of figuring out how this would work within the moment. Mm-hmm. And also the two of us, I, I didn't write all of those lyrics. That was one of those instances where I think it was a lot of revisions and working through, if I remember, the process for this song. And it was kind yeah. of different.
0: Well, and, and actually, the, the girl who I liked, she deserves almost a half a writing credit on this because I always loved the way that you staged this number. It was the lead character, Julie, in a, like a pink polo shirt, and all the other girls came out on stage and they were dressed in all black, and she kind of like weaves her way among them, and they act out these little vignettes of what is in, in the lyrics. And I thought it was a really creative idea But actually, this girl that I was talking to came up with a lot of the names that I used in the song. Jenny's moody,
2: but never pays attention. Beth is
0: sweet, but she's rude as hell. Lisa doesn't have to ever ask for anything. I don't remember the fourth girl. Cindy? I don't know. (laughs)
1: uh, But the thing that was kind of interesting about that moment is that something that we can look at it from both sides and both angles in that instance because we have julie who is singing about everybody else and then she kind of goes and says i'm not like that i'm not like all of these other people but from some of her actions that we've seen before yeah is she that's one of those instances where as we look back with 35 year old eyes and 36 year old eyes as compared to 16 and 17 year old eyes how reliable is she in that moment is she giving us the truth? Is she really different? Or is she just all of the same, just pointing out all of those things? It's kind of a a Mean Girls type moment.
2: Yeah.
0: That was in the era of Mean Girls, which I actually, I was late to the party. I didn't see the movie Mean Girls until 2014. I'd never seen it. And it was out when we were in high school. I'm sorry to hear that, Patrick. (laughs) Um, But just going back to, we were both talking about motif and things like that part of that we wanted to introduce the life as a musical theme earlier in the show and one of the ways that we did that was in the the very Les Mis style number that was originally called Confrontation that we uh oh we reintroduced as Stolen <laughs> it had this very kind of thumping bass kind of uh introduced that, you know, Life is a Musical in minor. So, we we got it in there.
1: Looking back at that song, that was one of those moments where, like, we really didn't know what to do from a direction standpoint. They were were fighting with brooms. (laughs) I, it, <laughs> I, no, but I,
0: I think that's, I think that's charming. When you, when you go back and you watch that like fight scene, the villain character Frank, he brings like an aluminum baseball bat into the scene, and Liam tries to fight him off with a broom handle. And
1: didn't the broom break one of those shows? It,
0: it was one of those like <laughs> aluminum handles that like totally like bent in half.
1: Yep, uh, we obviously had a very, very high production budget. <laughs> Uh, The aluminum baseball bat, which is still probably at one of our parents' house, and then...
0: Yeah, probably, probably. (laughs) Actually, one of the things that we worked on and that we added late was a reprise of that song that I engineered a very complex modulation into a reprise of another song, and I guess it's now time to talk about this song. The Elephant in the Room? Yeah. Talk about what your original idea for, for this song was. Alright, so the song that
1: Pat is alluding to is uh, Julie's once again, we, we come to realize it's a show about Julie, even though we thought it was about uh, our protagonist who we, we haven't even mentioned
0: the the eye roll of the protagonist's name. Well that wasn't the that wasn't his original name. I don't
1: even remember. what was his I don't even remember. Jimmy? Oh, Jimmy. Jimmy Hansen. Jimmy,
0: poor Jimmy.
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, well, oh.
0: again, talking <laughs> about musicals that were current at the time. Jimmy,
2: oh, Jimmy.
1: Yeah. So, of course, in our infinite wisdom, and then we'll get to the, the song that we've been just beating around the bush for the entire time. Uh, of course, Life is a Musical, the main character had to be named Liam. We can all collectively just uh, shake our heads and roll our eyes and say, okay, kids being kids. Uh, <laughs> but as we come to realize that the show is not really about Liam, even though he thinks it is. Julie, after having her moment in Act 1 singing about how she's not like the other girls uh, in Girls I Know, how she's different, she has her revelation moment where uh, the antagonist, who is named Frank, just pushes her too far. Our Act 2, which I guess we'll probably talk about a little bit later, uh, our Act 2 was held up entirely by this song and this song only. <laughs> but The Nice uh,
0: Guys Finish Last was, was good, too. I like
1: that. Yeah, that needs to be the act one closer when we rewrite, but still.
0: That that one can stay.
1: (laughs) That one can stay. Uh, And then we have to do Take a Left.
0: That's going to be the name of this episode. I
1: thought thought it was going to be Bleacher Bums.
2: (laughs) Anyway.
0: So, again, this is something that I, I realized many years later. One of my hallmarks as far as a fan of music and a fan of composition is the and again it was fairly current at the time the 1998 album Painted From Memory which is sung by Elvis Costello and it's a collaboration between him and Burt Bacharach and there's a song called I Still Have That Other Girl which is just this gorgeous ballad and it starts I won't play too much of it but it goes into the, the first chord progression is which I didn't realize until many years because I originally wrote this in C which is what it modulates to it's, it's the rare downward modulation at the end of a song um, so I wrote the song eventually the way that it was put up in F
1: the entire time. We haven't even told them the title yet have
0: we? I'll sing a little bit of it. Okay. Not so much that it advances the plot, but it does bring the Julie character to an epiphany. It does bring her to a decision point.
1: And of course, the song is called I Never Really Loved Him. And that's her moment, and maybe this is once again angsty teenage boys writing about teenage angst, uh, trying to look at it from the other perspective of... uh, of her coming back and saying, okay, maybe this wasn't the right choice, which we in high school are marred by figuring out which choices are the right ones on a daily basis. Uh, Uh, today, obviously it's very, very different with all of the, uh, the pressures from social media and everything else with, uh, TikTok, all of the other things and Snapchat that they are so interconnected. When we wrote it, I guess coming to the point of, of singing, which that's what in a musical theater situation happens when you've reached the point where there's so much emotion that yeah. you can't do anything but sing. She gets to the point where she's just so fed up, where she's just like, I, I'm done. And the thing that's really interesting is the, the song, which was a really wonderful 11 o'clock number, we reprise it immediately afterwards. yeah. Which was probably something very sophisticated for us to be kind of thinking through afterwards we didn't necessarily put it in the context of how it needed to go. We had this, uh, we had Julie pouring out her heart and making a decision only to have all of the other girls come in and have a reprise right afterwards, which we could have molded in a slightly different way, but really was, I think, a fairly advanced thing to go through in our moments there. Yeah.
0: I think if we want to give ourselves more credit than is necessary, there is this kind of feeling when I go back and I I watch that production of you're not sure what songs are being sung in the characters' minds or what songs are performative. Because it is about theater and it is about life being a musical and I feel like there are some moments and some numbers in that show that you're like, okay, this is part of the musical that they're doing, and there are some that are like, oh, this is in their actual heads. Yeah, it's very very meta, which, I yeah, mean, it was, at it, the was, time, it was meta before, yeah. Before meta was meta. Yeah. When it was still Facebook. <laughs> right. I, I mean, we, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we like to say that we, we were high school musical before we were high school musical, but we were also like... And again, not to pump this up larger than it was, but we were Dear Evan Hansen before Dear Evan Hansen. We were coming up with these ideas that now we
1: look back at it with some hindsight bias and say, there were some really interesting things that we put in here as we have uh, entered different stages of our lives and different uh, points of our careers. We can see that a lot of these things are more universal than we realized. Yes, it may have been generic potentially at the time but what is the difference between generic and universal I think that's a very interesting question to
0: ask there were some very not interesting things in the show or things that you weren't (sighs) interested in I
1: I, thought we were going to avoid that number (laughs) Uh, there was a number that was written that was um, we were admittedly theater nerds being theater nerds yeah, is that a fair word
0: choice for that I, number? Listen, I will, I will defend the song "American Musical Theater" until I am in my grave.
1: I won't defend it, and
0: I will, and I will, I will tell you why. It is my best self parody that I've ever written because it's everything that I'm nerdy about. It's, it's me making fun of everything that I'm nerdy about.
1: Yes, it's just very, very interesting. Uh, the song we're referencing, uh, "American Musical Theater," it was a, a pastiche number. Uh, it was somewhere between a patter song and a list song. And it was definitely, uh, to call it unique, I think it was so different from the rest of the score. It was. It
0: didn't, it didn't fit the rest of the show. I will say that. But I liked it also because it gave the best friend characters a, a shot.
2: You sing a bunch of singing, bunch of voices rhyming. And then you sing them double time. It makes you want to shoot. But find your health gets in with those of China. It makes you want to cross the line. It's a shot shouting, driven. Not on. three, we're done. It's one, it's two, that i get to be a psyche
1: i think we we kind of so and uh, maybe uh, we talked a little bit about the structure in the yeah. in the broads of senses it was really a show with six lead voices where we had uh, in a traditional musical comedy you have of course the couple for love the couple for comedy uh, and we had that yeah we had the couple for love which Never really ended up being really together, like in the end, Liam and Julie didn't end up. It wasn't like happy, happy joy joy yeah we,
2: we
0: we left it ambiguous or we just didn't write it i I'm pretty sure we didn't <laughs> write it
1: because um Act two was a bit of a mess We'll word it that way we didn't know if we wanted to do a time jump, we didn't know if we wanted to move ahead, then we were in college, but then what was Julie thinking differently? Why are things changing? So it was definitely something that uh, as we continued to grow as writers, we have now looked back and said, oh act two. (laughs) <laughs> so we understood the motivations and where we needed to go. So when we were talking about uh, never really loved him, which is I guess it's a bop, right? It slaps. Yeah, it slaps. It's definitely a bop. So it's one of those it's things. It's not
0: it's not mid.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we really knew we had that kind of tent pole, eleven o'clock number, yeah. we knew we had that moment, but we didn't really realize that at that time that was the turn from a show being about Liam to a, a show being about her. Yeah, and uh, that's something that we we can revisit. I
0: texted you. Do you remember this? It was during the pandemic when the Hamilton film came out, and there was all of that stuff about Eliza <laughs> realizes like the story is about her, and I was like, we did
2: this too,
1: <laughs> but twenty years ago. <laughs> uh, we did, but unknowingly we did. That's the yeah. thing that was really interesting about. Yeah. The process, and I I think we've probably lost a little bit of the thread other than kind of talking about a show that we've written many, many moons ago. Uh, Oh, God, I was about to ask you a question. Yeah. This kind of became, came back. Oh, it's, it's twisting. So (laughs) uh, we have. I'm scared now. uh, uh, You mentioned how we've had some starts and stops with revisions on this work. And it's really, really interesting to see, and we've alluded a lot throughout this, this uh, podcast and this process about looking back and seeing it differently these days. As we continue to flirt with the idea of revisions and, and visiting things again, it comes to the question of how much material stays as the original work and then what becomes changes over the course of time and what falls into history as that was that show and then this thing that we're taking and exporting potential parts from into something new.
2: A little fun, a few more laps. that's the little boy I see. Don't ever forget what's made you the man you're about to be. enough inside to be someone who stands
0: out so what's your question so what the
1: the question is when does it go from what we wrote when we were younger to our more modern and older sensibilities
0: yeah like is it would it even be called life as a musical or would it be something else entirely
1: and i don't know yeah the answer is I think that the title, as lovely as it is, might not necessarily fit. I mean, there are so many shows that have changed titles multiple times before yeah. they even get to uh, anyone seeing them. Right. Or then you have shows that have had the same title for 15 years, Town, or whatever it may be along right. the line. Mm-hmm. So it's something that... The question is, is a work of art ever complete? And we can look back at that time and say is this complete or is this something that we want to revise or is this something that we want to just say, cool, we like some ideas. Let's see where it goes for other things.
0: Well, that's the question that they ask in Sunday in the park with George, which ironically also has a hugely problematic second act. (laughs) Touche. I did, I did want to say before we kind of wrap this up that in talking about the show, and how we wrote it in high school, when we were kind of getting the feeling that we were going to be ready to perform at senior year, a lot of the stuff that we put in late in that process, we kind of, and we did a full audition and callback and casting process, but we had our friends, and we knew basically who was going to be involved, and we started, at least I started to Tailor some of what I was writing and adding and editing to the people that I thought were gonna be in the show. And Never Really Loved Him being a special song to me, I realized that I was tailoring that song eventually to our friend Julia Carey, who is the only person who's ever sung that song, and if I have my way, will be the only person who ever will.
1: exciting to yes we put on a production but it was almost a workshop Mm -hmm. to an extent because we were working with the actors and working it was really all us there was a a faculty advisor but they chimed in every once in a while to make sure we weren't doing anything incredibly stupid but it was one of those instances where uh, I don't know if we realized at the time how lucky we were to be able to workshop a full-length musical, okay, Act Two. A full-length musical.
0: No, look. In high there, school, there there were seventeen songs in that show. I mean, it was it was as thorough as I think we were gonna get at that point. And then we started orchestrating, which was a, yeah. it's
1: a once again no score. Don't try to orchestrate without a score. Yeah, well, we learned that in high. It was a rock
0: pit.
1: Yeah, you just gave him changes and hoped.
0: Yeah, and you know what? We had the fortune to pick good players. And it, was, it sounded good. It was, And the thing that's remarkable looking back, and
1: uh, I, we're very proud of this, it was us. And it was all, it was the student pit. It was student lighting. It was student set design. Yeah. Everything that we did there, and we may have lost the thread of the, the process of writing a little bit here, but everything we did there was, uh, was us.
0: No, I, 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 students. Think, yeah, I, I think that's all relevant to kind of the larger point of anyone who's... There have been books upon books upon books written about how to write a musical. And there is no blueprint. You could educate yourself as much as you want, but you kind of have to do it. You have to have those ideas. You have to be able to organize them. You have to know where the—you talked about where the big beats, the big moments are in this show. You have to know where those are, and does that require a monologue? Does that require a song? Does that require some sort of a pivot in characterization? Those are all things that, again, I don't even think we realized we were thinking about, but we did. Uh, we definitely uh,
1: were going in with our experiences in seeing productions and being in productions, and we're just like— cool, this feels like this needs to be here. Mm-hmm. And I guess some of our instincts were pretty good. Yeah.
0: Life is a Musical was based on an original idea, script, and partial lyrics by Jason Kahn, with music and most lyrics written by Patrick Lavery, starting in 2002. The show had its world premiere at Morris High School on May 6, 2005, with a series of revisions which began that summer continuing to this day. Seeds that were planted for an updated revival performance in 2010 came to fruition in the first year of COVID-19, with a 15th anniversary production live-streamed on Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom on May 8th, 2020, starring Con and Lavery with contributions from original cast members Julia Carey, Bobby Rufael, Megan Hatem, Billy Long, Brian Ott, and special guest Martha Lavery, and appearances by Music Mountain Theater performers including Jenna Perilla-Alvino, Rhett Commodero, Emily Cooper, Lauren Donahoe, John and Jen Fisher, Chelsea Connolly lewis Aaron Looney, David McLuhan Jr., Allie McMullen, Jenny McNiven, Jen Pilchman, Casey Ivan-Portenier, and Lauren Waxman. The original 2005 production can be found in its entirety on YouTube. Act Two Anthem Never Really Loved Him was once favorably compared to the Jim Steinman composition Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, made popular by Meatloaf. A second Con Lavery musical entitled Bleacher Bums about the diehard fans of a hapless baseball team remains unfinished as of this recording. I'm Patrick Lavery. I have not, as yet, been sued by Hoover Vacuums. But this has been a very special episode of Just Upstage of Downtown, the Music Mountain Theater podcast. To be continued.